Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. The Shepherd's Crook exists to provide care, counsel, and resources for pastors. You can get more information at theshepherdscrook.co. My name is Jared Sparks, and I'm a pastor coming alongside other pastors, reminding them of the chief pastor. Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. This is episode 144, and today we're going to talk about America. And we're going to talk about the manfulness or the manliness of Jesus from John chapter 18 and John chapter 19. Hope you all are doing well this morning. Happy Independence Day to you. And for us, yesterday was a really special day as well because it was my son Ransom's birthday. He is seven. It's crazy how fast time flies. It's just unbelievable. And you know, when you have your children, when they can just continue to grow up, I mean, time just goes all that much more. It's just been a wild ride with him. And we're so thankful for the boy, the young man that he's becoming and it's just an awesome time in our life, and so I hope you're doing well. Why don't we go ahead and pray, and then I want to just give you an overview of what I told our congregation about America and how thankful I am to live in this country, and then we'll get into John 18 and 19. Let's pray. Lord, we need wisdom and direction. We always need that. We always need wisdom, and James tells us if any of you lacks wisdom, and just to be as frank as I can be, I need it, and everyone listening needs wisdom. We need direction for the day. And we're asking that you give it because you tell us that if we ask in faith, you're going to promise that you promise to give it to us. And so we're going to we're going to trust that you're going to give us wisdom. And we thank you for your grace that's upon us. That's just unmovable, unshakable grace that's always there for us. And we just thank you for that. Lead this time in this discussion. I trust that you're going to. God, I thank you for the country that we get to live in. If there's any anybody listening outside of this country, Lord, I pray that they would experience the same sort of liberties and freedom from tyranny that we are supposed to have and historically have had, that they would experience that now. And we pray, God, for limited government. We ask for liberty to live our lives in the way that you would have us in a self-controlled manner. We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. I hope you guys are doing good. Here's what I told our congregation yesterday before I got into the sermon. It was America's birthday yesterday, 4th of July, 1776. The Declaration of Independence was signed, and I just want to thank God for America. And today, I want you to not be ashamed to be thankful to live in this country. As pastors, we have been inundated with the last couple years this just scare tactic of being a Christian nationalist, whatever that weird thing is. And we have been so propagandized to believe that America was not a Christian nation from the beginning. And the truth is that it was absolutely a Christian nation. 98% of the population of America claimed to be Protestant believers at the signing of the Declaration of Independence. 98%. And then there's a small fraction of the percent out of that. The remaining was Catholic and then the remaining of, of whoever else after that. The founders imagined freedom of religion to be freedom of Christian denomination and primarily Protestantism. They did not view the future as a pluralistic future in America. I think they would have repudiated that idea. But when we think about the 4th of July, and as pastors, I want us to be really encouraged to think through this. really want to encourage you to think through this. Freedom from tyranny is a glorious thing. It is a glorious thing to celebrate. And our founding fathers and before them the pilgrims came here to see the kingdom of God established in the new world. That's what they wanted to see. We were a Christian nation in the sense that, an like I just said, the overwhelming majority of the population or the people before independence up to and after were believers in Jesus. You probably know this, but over half of the signers of the Declaration of Independence were seminary trained. And the deist, everybody says, this is what I learned growing up, that deism was the reigning idea or the reigning religious idea during the founding of our country. And that's absolutely false. Deism 
and deism today were quite different. Deism back then meant that they denied the divinity of Christ, and yet they embraced much of the Bible and spoke from the Bible, spoke of the providence of God and God Almighty. They denied the deity of Christ. Some of them did, but most of them were good Orthodox Protestant believers. So there was a big difference when we hear, well, but many, many of them were deists. Well, not many of them were deists. You can find this. This is in the historical record, and you can get original source material of quotes. Just look. I mean, it takes literally like 30 seconds to search and find quotes from the Founding Fathers. It's an amazing thing. But they fought for freedom in the Christian religion. They fought for freedom to live our lives in a self-controlled manner, free from government overlords, free from tyranny. And it's important, Doug Wilson had a really good post on this the other day, but this has been fun to study over the last couple of years, but it's important to understand that the American Project was birthed out of a concern for the law of God and a fight against tyrants who would control the lives of people in an ungodly way. If you remember the interview that John MacArthur did with Ben Shapiro a couple of years ago, he had a position that he now rejects, and he has embraced a more biblical position, but he had talked about how we were in violation of Romans 13 during the Revolutionary War. And the truth is, America was actually in the right because we were standing for the rule of law. And that's really important because our founding fathers knew that human government had delegated and regulated authority by God and not inherent authority. Governments do not have inherent authority just because they are organized by the people. Human government has delegated and regulated authority from God and by God. Human government is to be God's servant and not Satan's servant, or they're not to put themselves on a pedestal as if they are God with that inherent authority. When governing authorities rule with an iron fist, they require their subjects to obey them over God. That's the whole problem with tyranny. They, the tyrant views himself as God and then views everybody else as their subjects to obey them over God. And they get irate when there is a loyalty from the people to something higher than themselves. That's what the American Revolution was about. It was a stand against government overlords of Great Britain who were breaking their own law and requiring the American people to sin. And here's what Christians must understand. These two big things that we have to understand. Number one, there's a Christian obligation for all of time, not just during the Revolutionary War, and for all governments across the world to obey Acts 5.29. We are to walk in the footsteps of Peter and the apostles when they answer that we must obey God rather than man. Every Christian must do this and resist authorities that demand that we obey them over God. Matthew Trella puts it this way, when the government commands that which God forbids or forbids that which God, God commands, we disobey the government and we obey God. And then we have to understand this as American citizens. Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And here's a question you can ask you, yourself, and your people. Who is that in America? Who are the governing authorities in America? Well, the Constitution of the United States tells us we, the people of the United States of America, we the people, and we elect public servants, but it's we who must govern them. It's we who must get them out if they were ruling as if they're emperors. America fought for the rule of law. That's what I celebrate in 4th of July. It was not a revolution. It was a resistance against tyranny, and so I want to celebrate freedom from tyranny, freedom to obey God's law, freedom to live as God would have us, to live our lives, and I stand with our founding fathers telling the world that we obey God over man. And by God's grace, here's what we want, pastors. We want to rule well in a country, in this country, and fight to elect elected and appointed officials who know that they are public servants and not emperors. 
They need to know that Jesus is king for the glory of God and the good of the world. And so I'm thankful for our country. That's what I told our people yesterday. I hope you told them something as well. It is important for us to understand the glory that is the American Project and what God did in this country. It's just an amazing thing. All right, now let's talk about John 18 and 19 quickly. And I just want you to see the manliness of Jesus. And you can really put this in juxtaposition to the Apostle Peter. Because in John chapter 18, we see that Peter denies Christ. This is his denials, the famous denials. Jesus told him he would do this. And then in a cowering way, Peter, in opposition to how Jesus faced his accusers in John 18 and 19, Peter shakes in his boots and Jesus marches as God would have him march, not passing the cup that was given him to drink. Even though he prays in Gethsemane that this cup would be removed from him in a manful way, in a way that we should emulate, he steps up and he does what's required. He takes responsibility. And this is what this is what men are called to do. We are to take responsibility. When you look at John chapter 18, you see this. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Hear this, Jesus is willing to do what God has called him to do. And this is something that we should be emulating, obviously, as pastors, is doing what, what God has required of us and not shrinking in fear as the apostle Peter shrank in fear. And we need to step up into all that God has called us to as pastors and look at the regulative principle that, that God has called us to to worship, but look at the regulative principle in pastoral ministry and look at what God has prescribed us to be and do as pastors, as Christian men first, obviously, and then to do all that God has called us to do. And then you see this with Peter, and he denied it, and he denied it, and he denied it. And then we see Jesus before Pontius Pilate, and then the declaration from Pontius Pilate that he finds no guilt in Jesus. I love this because this is a picture of justification on the flip side, where we see that Jesus really was guiltless. And he was declared guiltless by the authorities. And this is the same sort of, this is a picture of the justification that we get from God, where the declaration, I find no guilt in him, comes down upon us. Jesus got it from Pilate. We get it from God. It's glorious. And then in John 19, we're doing this whole thing of, of looking at pastoral lessons that we can learn from Jesus as we go through the Gospel of John. So if you're new with us, that's what we're doing. We're going chapter by chapter and, and showing that Jesus is 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 personified, that he's qualified in pastoral ministry, even though many of the scenes that we've looked at through the Gospel of John, chapter by chapter, would seem to be against the modern narrative of what a pastor is to be, or even for what a Christian is supposed to be in that manner, manner because we have elevated this virtue that's not a Christian virtue, the Christian virtue is kindness, but we have elevated niceness as the ultimate premier Christian virtue to not offend the world. And if you look at that with Jesus and apply that to him, well, over and over again, we would say that Jesus is unqualified because he's not nice by today's standards. So that, that's what we've been doing with this whole John project is we've been learning pastoral lessons from Jesus and seeing that he is wisdom personified and pastoral ministry personified. So learn pastoral lessons from Jesus. Now, in John 19, we see that Pilate says this again. He says that I find no guilt in him. But I want you to see what Jesus does. And this is so just wonderful. Jesus is commanded to be silent. Now, often in the discussion about manhood and womanhood, we get nervous to talk about women being silent in the churches. And we shouldn't because it's a glorious command. Because God tells his son, God the Father tells God the Son to be silent. And Jesus didn't see that as demeaning. He obeyed his heavenly Father. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered into his headquarters and he said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Here's what we get, silence. Verse 10, it says, so Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? So first, Jesus is silent. Now notice, Jesus is going to do what's required to get him to the cross. 
He's going to be silent when he needs to be silent, when his heavenly Father commands him to be silent, and he's going to speak when he needs to speak, and when his heavenly Father commands him to speak. Now, in John 10, when he when Pilate says, don't you know I have this authority? Jesus answered back, you would have no authority over me unless it had been grant given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you is the, has the greater sin. Now, I want you to see, when I talk about the manfulness of Jesus, or the manliness of Jesus, and what we want to emulate. And women are going to emulate Jesus in a different way. They're going to be Christ-like in a feminine way. And men are going to emulate Jesus in a different way, in a masculine way. And we're going to, we're going to follow him as men. And this is a masculine manly example where Jesus is able to step up to the authorities and not shake, not be in fear, and do what's required, which is do his responsibility for the sake of others. He's silent when he needs to be silent, and then he lets he lets Pilate know that Pilate has, like we were talking about earlier, delegated and regulated authority. His authority was given to him by God. It was not inherent within his own seat or his own position. This is so powerful. Guys, we have to have this as pastors. We have to be able to speak with a prophetic voice in the way that Jesus here speaks to Pilate. We also have to be able to speak with this in this prophetic way, in a biblical way, to let people know, to let elected and appointed officials, even people like Pilate in the Roman Empire, that they have an authority over them, that their authority is not simply because they sit on the throne or they sit in the delegated seat of authority in a particular place. Now, Jesus goes, he bears his own cross. We see the crucifixion and how brutal this is. And so often we miss, miss the elements as we consider the wrath of God coming upon him, the physical pain that was there and the spiritual pain combined. This was pain like no other in the history of the world. Jesus is absorbing the very wrath of God, hell itself, put into a temporary time slot, literally eternity coming down upon Jesus on the cross. And Jesus faces it and does what's required. Now, Jesus did all that was required. We see in verse 28 that Jesus, knowing that all is now finished, said to, the, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour, sour wine was put there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had, re, had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Jesus did all that was required of him. Now, when we talk about what Christ has done, and talk about him as the good shepherd. What he did in his life, death, and resurrection is not replicable in the sense that we cannot live our life for the sake of another. That our life is no one's substitute. Jesus' life in his perfect obedience to his heavenly Father in his substitutionary death and his resurrection did what no other man can do. And yet, we are called to live as Christian men, as pastors, in a Christ-like manner. And as you look at Passion Week, as you look at the Passion leading up to the cross, you see a picture of Jesus the man doing what God would have him do and doing it in an honorable fashion. And this is what I want you to hear. We need pastors who are willing to do what Jesus did. Not march to the cross, but live their life doing what God has called them to do in a way that isn't like Peter, not shaking in our boots. Doing it for the joy that's set before you. You bear the difficulties because the joy that's set before you. Because God has called you to this good work, this noble work. And we're not doing this work like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. But we're doing this work because this is what God has called us to. For goodness sake, we're not marching to the cross. The difficulties that we face are not a crucifixion. The difficulties that we face are people being upset with us. Friends being mad at us if we make a stand. The difficulties we face are maybe somebody's mean to us. 
And so when we compare that to what Christ has experienced, or many of the people down through the history of the world have experienced the cost of following Jesus, the cost for us is so much less than the cost of so many of those who have walked before us. And so when we look at John 18 and 19, I want you to be manly. I want you to take on responsibility like Jesus did, and he did that for you. There's so many times that we're going to drop the ball, so many times that we're going to be like Peter. And we can look to Christ and realize that Christ is our great sacrifice. We can see Christ for us. But Christ for us is not intended to leave us where we're at. We lead our congregations. And by the grace of God, we want to step up into more and more Christ-like living and more and more Christ-like pastoral ministry. He is the good shepherd after all, and he is shepherding us well. And so we want to start to shepherd and live as Christ would have us. Guys, I hope you have a great week. We're again learning pastoral lessons from Jesus. If this has been helpful, please share this. Subscribe, leave a rating or review on iTunes, and please spread the word. Please help me get this word out. If you want to support the work, there is a monthly cost. It's 50 bucks a month, and so if you want to support this work, you can do that. If you want to send me 20 bucks, I still have a few hats left, and I can send you a hat, and that will cover the cost of the hat and the shipping. Um, other than that, I don't know. I think that's I think that's it. I hope you guys have a great week.